0: Amen. If you have a Bible you want to open up to Genesis chapter 12, we're going to do the second half of that chapter this morning, which is from verse 10 down to verse 20. And what you have here is the first sort of like narrative description of Abram's life in light of the promises that God makes to him at the start of Genesis chapter 12. And From like this point forward, Genesis essentially reads uh, a bit like a novel. Um, I don't know if you're a a book reader, a novel reader. Uh, My wife and I both are, but we read novels incredibly differently. Uh, I want to sit down with a novel, basically turn my brain off and just sort of be like along for the ride. Like, you know what, whatever happens, happens. I'm not trying to figure it out. Um, My wife sits down with a novel and every detail matters a lot, and so I get to the end of a book. I say, "Hey, I, I loved this. I think you should you should read it. I think you would like it too." She gets done, and I'm so anxious. Like, what did you think? And she says, uh, "It was fine." I was like, okay. Uh, well, what did what did you not like? And she'll say something like, "Well, on page 47, the author said this, but then on page 216, this happened, and those two things can't both be true." And there were just all these little problems with it like that. And then if you ever watch the movie adaptation of that novel, it's like encyclopedic, encyclopedic uh, memory of all the details in that novel that are now different in that movie. And, I was, and I'm just sitting there like, it was great. I, I feel like a dum-dum when we talk about what a novel was like at the end. Uh, often when we, when we come to narrative like long narrative sections of scripture we read it like i read novels which is we're ju- we're just kind of like generally taking in what happens but when when we're engaging in scripture we need to read a lot more like how my wife reads a novel rather than how i do we've got to come to the passages sit down with them and slow down enough to ask questions, to take in the full context and remember what it is that's happening like where we left off yesterday, where we picked up today. We've got to be willing to question our own assumptions as we come to any given passage so that what we're taking from the passage is based on what it says, not on the assumptions we made when we came to it. We've got, we've got to be willing to read a lot slower. So we're going to take a short little narrative here about Abram and his household in Egypt. And we're going to do all that stuff. Remember the context, ask questions, probe our own assumptions. And so I'll start with a reminder of the context for this before we read it. How is it that Abram responds or reacts or starts to live in light of The promises that god made to him in genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 because genesis 12 10 through chapter 14 is going to show us what that response looked like for abram before god then sort of like establishes or sets his covenant with abram into place i also want to make one note before we do this uh last week this week the next few weeks I'm gonna do the best job I can to call Abram and Sarai, Abram and Sarai, but sometimes I'm going to say Abraham and Sarah. Uh, And rather than me trying to correct myself every single time I say the wrong name, just know that in a few chapters, Abram is going to become Abraham, and that's the same guy, and Sarai is going to become Sarah, and that's the same woman, and I will do my best to keep it straight at the right times, but it won't be perfect. Sound good? Yep, okay, here we go. If you've got Genesis 12 open there in front of you, this is Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10 and working through the end of the chapter. It says this, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife they will kill me But let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for... This morning, God, for the opportunity to gather together in worship. God, for a chance to pause, take communion, and reflect on Jesus' death on the cross. God, thanks for your word, the chance to open it together. Lord, with your spirit present here among us, take the truth of your word, the truth of your son. Trust it into our hearts, Lord, in a way that changes us, transforms us, in a way that encourages us, in a way that maybe challenges us or grows us forward in likeness to Jesus. God, we submit that those things happen because of you and the work that you do inside of us. And so we humble ourselves and ask you to come and have your way here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Short story here, short narrative description of a thing that happens to Abram and his family in Egypt. So just like question number one, how is the narrative set up? It's set up in like four pieces, maybe you you could say five. There's a one verse, basically context setting piece. What's going on that sends Abram to Egypt? And then Abram's got an idea once he gets there. He presents that idea, acts in response to it, presumably even though we're not told exactly how that plays itself out. Then Pharaoh responds or acts in relation to Abram and his family. God intervenes. Those would be kind of the four pieces. You could say there's a fifth, like what was the outcome of that? But God's intervention and the outcome are kind of Woven together, So, piece number one, what's the setup to this whole thing? That's verse 10. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was so severe. There's a food shortage that sends Abram and his family to Egypt. I mentioned this last week, but biblical geography is kind of hard. So we made a little map to kind of show you the movement of things. Last week, we said that the narrative is generally moving west. You can see that with the little line. Abram Abram comes from Ur. He wanders down. And the Negev is like a little piece adjacent to Egypt there. Egypt is like the main area that you think of as the country. And then it has a little chicken wing that's the Sinai Peninsula. The Negev borders right there. So Abram had made it to the Negev. There was a food shortage. Then he moves over into Egypt. As Moses is recording this account to the Israelite people out in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, they would have known a thing or two about food shortages that send them to Pharaoh and Egypt, right? That's how they get into Egypt in the first place where they then become slaves, where they then need to be delivered by God. So the setup to an Israelite person listening to this would sound very familiar. Oh yeah, when there's a food shortage, oftentimes Egypt can lend us a hand. That happened to us with Joseph and his his whole family. Here it is happening to Abram and his family. But then sort of the next question you could ask yourself is, In light of what we just saw from Abram at the start of chapter 12, what's going on here? Why does he leave the land that God said that he was going to give him and flee to another place? Is he like abandoning God's promise to him that this is the land that your family will inherit? If you look again at verse 10, depending on your translation, Genesis is trying to convey something. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. The CSB says to stay there for a while. If you've got an NASB, it uses the exact same phrase. If you're using an ESV or a King James, uh, it says he went down to Egypt to sojourn there. If you've got an NIV, it says to live there for a while, or an NLT, where he lived as a foreigner. All of those are trying to convey the same thing. Abram goes down there as a temporary state. He's going there for a while. He's going to sojourn there, journey there for a bit, in order to bring relief to his family. And then he, he's presumably planning to go back over to the Negev or back up into Canaan. This is a temporary stop. His intent is relief from the famine, and then he's going to go home. Then in verse 11, down through 13, you get Abram's, idea. He said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. What in the world is going on there? That would be question number three that I would ask. (coughs) Say what? And the answer to that most succinctly is there's some sin at play here. If you read this in the most like practically gracious light that you could, you would say that Abram wants to protect his family and thinks that if someone wants to take Sarai as a wife, then under this plan, he would be able to negotiate that interaction because that would have been the cultural norm there. And in the negotiation, he could turn down everything that was offered, and she would never be taken as a wife. That would be the most practically gracious way that you could think about this. What he doesn't factor in is the possibility that the other negotiating party is the most powerful man on the planet, Pharaoh. Okay. If you wanted to read this in the most theologically gracious light that you could, you would say, Abram, in response to the promises that God just made to him, says, if I die, I can't become a great nation, have a great name, and be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. So I will do what I can on my side to make sure that I am not put to death. That would be the most theologically gracious way that you could read this. If you read this in the most negative light possible, you would see that it's stated in there Please say that you are my sister so it will go well for me. I'm not really concerned about what happens to you. I want it to go well for me. And then they will let me live on your account. So if you read it in the most negative light, you would say that Abram's looking out for number one here and is not overly concerned about what happens to anybody else. He doesn't care that he's going to have to maybe not lie but at least be deceitful like in his mind maybe he's saying well this is a half truth like she is related to me in by steps so like we're not totally lying but he also doesn't seem to care about what happens to Sarai in the midst of the whole thing and there are a whole slew of options in between practically gracious theologically gracious and most negative it's impossible for us to discern Abram's motivation entirely but but those are some options. We also, in the midst of that, get our second sort of biographical statement about Sarai. We learned last time that, um, why am I blanking? We learned here, oh yeah, we learned last time she's unable to have children. We learned here, she's very beautiful. You've gotten two statements about her. She can't conceive, she's really pretty. I say that to say this, to the Old Testament's credit, It is very honest, in fact, sometimes brutally honest about the actions of even its most prominent figures and about the like full scope of human nature and brokenness stained by sin. The Old Testament does not ever paint over just how broken even it's like heroes are. And what's one of the realities that you're going to see repeat itself throughout the Old Testament? And that's that women were often treated like property rather than like image bearers. That would have been like the cultural sort of way of interacting at the time. And unfortunately, you'll see this throughout the Old Testament, you also see this in our world today, the people of God will adopt the customs that are surrounding them as it relates to how they view and interact with people rather than holding up like God's beautiful ethic about how it is that we interact with people. So here you've got Abram and his household adopting the general posture of the rest of the broken society around them rather than saying, I won't treat her like property, I'll treat her like an image bearer. He seems super interested in self-preservation and the plan involving Sarai is the means toward that end, regardless of what it means for her. It's also worth pointing this out. Genesis 12 doesn't tell us anything about how Sarah, or Sarai, engages with this plan. Does she agree with it? We're not told. Was she part of the creation of it? We're not told. Does she want nothing to do with it, but has no option because of that cultural reality that surrounds her? Did they have a really big fight about the plan? Or was she simply told that this is the way it's going to be and she said nothing in response? Because we're not told any of this, this would be a spot where we tend to immediately fill in the gaps with our own assumptions. We do this with Scripture all the time in hundreds of different ways. My guess is, this is a generalization, but my guess is that as we read through the account, or if you're familiar with it, as you thought through it, if you're a male you probably didn't think much about Sarai and how she responded to the plan. My guess is that if you are a female, you thought about Sarai and how she reacted to the plan immediately. Was she likely consulted? If you're a female, you said, probably not. If you're a male, you maybe didn't even really think about it. The risk when we do this, when we fill in with our assumptions in a spot where the Bible is silent is that then we arrive at a conclusion based on our assumption rather than based on what the text actually tells us. Or we insert a bunch of stuff into the text that it doesn't say so that we can draw from the text something that we're filling in rather than allowing it to speak to. And that's worth considering every single time we come to scripture. Am I making any assumptions here to fill in gaps? And if so, how might those assumptions color the way that I understand what I'm being told? That's like a bonus application. You can just take and do whatever you want with it. Here's what we can say at this point. At the very least, sin convinces even the most faith-filled people into foolish action. We've already seen that Abram Abraham leaves everything behind, goes to a land that is... He's never been to before. Leaves his father and his father's house and all the wealth and all the security and protection and comfort that would have come from that. Like God tells him to do this and he packs up everything and he goes and then what's the very next account? This half-baked idea in Egypt. And so sin convinces even the most faith-filled people into foolish action. That's one sort of honest observation of what's taking place here. And then in verse 14, you see What Pharaoh does, Abram entered Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her, praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household and he treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks, herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. Pharaoh does what Abram assumed that someone in Egypt would do. He finds out there's a beautiful woman in the country, hears that she isn't married, and takes her to be his wife. That would appear to be something that a king could do. In fact, it's very similar to the playbook that David is going to use when he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof one night. Pharaoh doesn't try to have Abram killed, that's what David does to Bathsheba's wife. Why? Well, because Abram isn't Sarah's husband. Right, So Pharaoh actually does the opposite of trying to have Abram killed. He lavishes gifts on him. Why would he do that? Because that's what you did when you took a wife. You provided gifts to the father of that woman or to the oldest remaining male sibling of this woman that you were marrying. We're told that Abram gets flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and male and female slaves or servants. That's like ancient uh, history's way of saying that Pharaoh made Abram wealthy in this. The modern day equivalent of that would be like the scene in a movie where a person walks in with a briefcase handcuffed to their hand and you know what's inside the briefcase, stacks of cash, right? That's what the text is telling you here. Abram got very rich off of the plan that he just hatched in relation to his wife. But then in verse 17, God intervenes. And the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. This would be the next observation that we could make. And that observation would be that God intervenes in human affairs, with sovereign providential power. Sovereign meaning that God is in control of everything, providential being sort of the way that we on the human side see God's intervention work. God strikes Pharaoh and everyone associated with him with a severe plague. Again, who would know a thing or two about God upstaging Pharaoh to rescue his people via plagues? The israelites out in the desert following the exodus account right and so the great comfort of this passage would be that well god has always been bigger and greater and grander than pharaoh like if you were an ancient israelite listening to this you would say okay so it, it's never mattered who the most powerful person in the world is god is more powerful than them and will intervene when he sees fit and how he sees fit in order to continue moving his plans forward Then Pharaoh does something shocking. He turns into the judge in this situation. Like, who is it that calls Abram account for his lies? Pharaoh, not not God. Pharaoh's like, I don't even know you. Why would you do this to me? Take your stuff and go. And also it's worth noting that the death that Abram wanted to avoid when he hatched this whole plan could have been leveraged right there. I tried to save myself by coming up with this plan. Then we got caught and the most powerful man in the world could have said, nice try, I'm killing you and taking all my stuff back and keeping your wife as my own because now you cease to exist. So the question is, why didn't Pharaoh do that? Why not act in that way? And it would seem as though the answer is that He's just seen the power that stands behind this stranger from Canaan and he's not trying to mess with that. It's, it's not that Pharaoh has a moment where he drops to his knees and says, oh, Yahweh is God of the universe. He just says, look, I don't know what's at play here, but it's big and it's powerful and you take your wife and all your stuff and please go far away from me. By the way, I'm sending an armed guard with you to make sure that you go all the way and are completely gone. And so then this little episode in Abram's life ends without telling us how long the whole thing lasts, exactly where in Egypt they ended up. Moses is more concerned with something larger than those details. And so the question at that point would be, what? What? Like why record of, of all the things you could record from Abram's life, why record this particular episode? What does this mean about God? What does it mean about his covenant promises? What does it mean for us today? Those are all the questions that you would ask at the application sort of level of understanding. And the answer to that would be, well, you've got to think sort of in stages here. You could read this, sort of like lift it up out of the context and say, the point of this passage is to warn people not to lie. Don't lie. That would be to sort of moralize the story. The Bible says you shouldn't lie, that lying is a sin. What we're supposed to do with this is take it as a cautionary tale of what happens when you lie. But let's think through it if that's the approach that you took. The point of the story is don't lie. Well, what are the results? Don't lie or you might get rich. That cannot be the point of this particular story, right? (laughs) Children, don't lie. He comes out loaded. What do you mean I shouldn't lie? It would appear that lying was the right way forward here. Okay, so then you're saying, no, that's not the point. So then is it don't lie, you might get deported. Like, is that the, if you lie, they'll kick you out of your country. So that's the takeaway. Neither one of those can possibly be the thing that Genesis chapter 12, 10 to 20 is attempting to tell us, right? What you could do with this is talk about the larger ethic of sin and honesty. But you can't really build the principle of not lying out of this passage. Abram is deceitful, and the results are this mixed bag of positive and negative. An account like this is what would lead Job to cry out, why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that a man lies and walks away rich? The stuff that happens as a result of Abram's lie and the negative consequences of that actually happened to other people further down the road when you keep reading in Genesis. The immediate impact is that some people who called Egypt home in some capacity... End up getting sent over to Abram's camp and then forced to leave the place where they they live. The servants that are, the male and female servants that are given to Abram, have now been taken from their home and they're going to go live somewhere else. In chapter 13, there is a conflict that arises between the uh, shepherds and the herdsmen in Abram's family and the shepherd and the herdsmen in Lot's family that ends up leading to the separation of this family, Abram and Lot. Where did those herdsmen come from? Here. Now we've got a conflict down the road that we wouldn't have had, Abram, if you hadn't lied in the first place when you were down there in Egypt. And then even further from there, the whole account that's going to play out between Hagar and her son Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac, it's most likely that Hagar, a female servant, ends up part of Abram's family because of this account. In fact, as Sarah is saying, send Hagar away, she says, send the Egyptian slave woman and her son away. And now here's Hagar and Ishmael literally walking out into the wilderness with no food and presumably left to die. Like at one point, Hagar laments that her, she's watching her son Ishmael die of starvation, all of that as the ripple effects of this particular thing. So don't lie, absolutely, because our sin impacts others. And here's a narrative example, but you only even catch the narrative example of that if you keep Genesis 12, 10 to 20 in the context of the whole story that's being laid out for us in Genesis. But why does Abraham lie? Abram, that's maybe the bigger piece here. He lies because he thinks he has to act in defense of God's plans and promises. What is is the narrator in the story or Moses trying to depict for us as it relates to the promises that God makes in Genesis 12, one through three and Abram's response? He's trying to point out that God will protect and fulfill his plans and promises. Even after Abram hatches his little plan here, it's not Abram that keeps God's covenant promises intact. It's God who does that. In fact, in a weird way, it's almost Pharaoh who comes out of this thing looking like the good guy. He does what a king at his time would normally do. And then he blesses Abram with a bunch of wealth. He lets him keep it after finding out that Abram lied to him. He scolds Abram for being a liar. He doesn't kill him when he could and he gives him an armed escort on the way out of the country. We know that Pharaoh can't be the hero in the story. It's pretty easy to see that Abram isn't the hero in the story. Well, So who is? God, of course, because he's the entire point the entire time for all of eternity. That's what we saw a couple weeks ago. It's God who protects and continues working to fulfill the promises that were made to Abraham. Pharaoh may not be able to articulate who or what is behind Abram, but he knows that there's something there that isn't worth trifling with. The reader knows that that thing is Yahweh, creator of the universe, enactor of covenants, protector of his plans and promises. It's because of God that Abram and Sarai come out of the situation as they do. It's because of God that the possibility of a great nation, a great name, blessing for the nations, and all the promises of the covenant are still on the table when Abram leaves Egypt, which would lead us to this conclusion, that humanity cannot achieve God's side of the covenant. We can't. In fact, in trying to fulfill God's side here, Abram actually abdicates his. Abram tries to do a thing that God said he would do. God said that he would make Abram into a great nation. And Abram thinks to himself, I can't be a great nation if I'm dead. So here's my plan. And in trying to fulfill God's side of the covenant, Abram actually abdicates his side. What did God tell him to do? Be in blessing to all the nations of the earth. Abram goes into Egypt. Would Pharaoh say, this man was a huge blessing to me? No. And so in trying to make God's side of the covenant happen, Abram willingly walks away from his side. How do, what do we do in an application sense with all of this? We often throw around the term legalism as followers of Jesus. Typically, when we kind of uh, flippantly throw that around, what we really mean is that a person is rigid in a spot or in a way that we don't like. And so we say things like, oh, they're regal, really legalistic about the way they do membership or the way that they preach or the way that their church does fill in the blank. Like, they're, they're really rigid about that, and we throw the legalism tag on there. But what legalism means in a biblical sense is attempting to merit or earn your salvation by your moral perfection or your obedience to the the Bible's capital L law, the commands of God. What is legalism? Legalism is humanity trying to fulfill or achieve God's side of the new covenant. It's looking at Jesus on the cross and saying, I got it myself. I'll just be really moral. And now I'm trying to fulfill the thing that God has fulfilled in Christ. I'm trying to take upon myself God's side of the new covenant agreements. What we have in Jesus is the fulfillment of both God's side of the covenant and our side. That's the wonder of who Jesus is. And like we mentioned last week, he's the fulfillment of this Old Testament covenant. He's the ultimate means by which Abram becomes a great nation. Jesus is the means by which his, Abram's name becomes great. Jesus is the means by which Abram and his line will inherit the earth. Jesus is the means by which Abram and his line are going to bless all of the nations. But he's also the basis of a new covenant, one that makes God's people righteous apart from obedience to the law. There's no place for legalism in the life of a follower of Jesus. We're righteous in him. He fulfills the law in our place while we acknowledge that we cannot and we receive the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus achieved a thing we could never achieve on our own. His end of the covenant is perfect righteousness. Our end of the covenant is humble acknowledgement of the fact that we are anything but perfectly righteous. When you sat there and you looked at your communion elements a few minutes ago, what you ought to have been reminded of is the gulf that exists between the righteousness of Jesus and the sinfulness of you. And you ought to have been humbled by the fact that the perfectly righteous one would receive the penalty that you deserve while you, the perfectly sinful one, received the gift that ought to have been his. Now, how we often live as followers of Jesus is as though all of that being true, my morality will still sort of push me over the finish line. I'm gonna get to heaven and God's going to say, Jesus was very sufficient, but good thing you helped because... Now you can come into my presence and fullness of eternal joy will be yours. Whether we would articulate that or not, we often function out of that within our hearts. And what are we doing? Don't worry, God, I'll take care of your side of the covenant. And I'll abandon mine, which is the humble acknowledgement side. Things get very sideways for Abram very quickly. And the same thing happens to us when we get caught up in this sort of prideful disbelief. Like Abram, we end up abdicating our side of the new covenant agreement. In an attempt to help God, we inevitably make a mess of things. We get prideful about our obedience. Well, it's because of us and our great self-control and our great moral fiber and our great discipline that God would choose to save us. Why did he pick me? Well, I don't know, but it's certainly because I'm a little bit better than the people around me. I'm a little bit more moral than the broken people around me. And then what we do is we get heavy handed toward believers who don't sort of measure up to our moral level, or we get standoffish and condescending toward those who don't know Jesus. And though we might never say it, when we're operating out of that place of legalism, there's something in our heart that says the reason that they've not ever been saved is ultimately because they don't deserve it. They're so sinful so broken. We got to keep them at arm's length. Rather than seeing Jesus as a blessing that we hold out to a broken world, we start to see him as something that others could not possibly deserve. And all of a sudden, we've made a mess. We've made a mess out of our own soul and we've made a mess for the people around us we become like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who stands there in the temple and beats his chest and says thank you God that I'm not like this tax collector whereas the tax collector stands there and says woe is me I'm a sinner And all of that does not mean that we're not growing in holiness. We talked about that last week. Obedience in action is an outflow of our faith in Jesus, but that faith begins with humble acknowledgement that Jesus has achieved the covenant in our place. We receive that, we grab hold of that, and we never move on from it or let go, regardless of how, how much our holiness grows. There's still an acknowledgement every time we hold those communion elements of the gulf that exists between Jesus' righteousness and our brokenness. Abram in Egypt ultimately serves as a reminder that's much bigger than being honest. He serves as a reminder that God does not need our help in fulfilling his side of his covenants, which are made for his glory and our good. When we separate the story from the context we get tempted into saying well this the story is just a warning against lying but we've already pointed out the pitfalls of stopping there in the context of genesis this is the first narrative example of the fact that despite humanity's boneheadedness god will not be thwarted that which he promises he will bring to pass that which he plans he will put to practice that which he wills he will see through. And in that we get an early picture of how the activity of God intersects with the sin of humanity. God doesn't intervene before Abram sins. Like, wouldn't that be the, the, the like, sensible thing to do? Abram hatches this plan, and God says, "Nope. Don't do that. I'll just take you over here to get food instead." But Abram's a human made in God's image. And thus he has agency and he's able to make choices. And some of those choices are opposed to the express commands of God. And yet, and here's the big takeaway this morning, human sinfulness will not negate the sovereignty of God. It can't. That's the big point The big takeaway that you can latch on to here and then watch unfold in a thousand ways throughout the rest of the Bible and also in the world and in your life. I'm gonna end with an illustration that you did not come to church expecting this morning. There used to be a cartoon. I don't know if they still make new episodes, but I'm sure you can find it somewhere. Bob the Builder. You remember Bob the Builder? Bob the Builder had a theme song and in it they would say, can we fix it? And then what would the response be? Yes, we can. Even the Bible's most faith-filled individuals are complicated mixtures of faith and sin. Abram just left everything to take God at his word and then stuff immediately gets weird. But God is not deterred. There's no panic. There's no redrawing of the plans. God intervenes. Abram is sent back out of Egypt, the covenant promises of God are perfectly intact and awaiting fulfillment and as you read throughout the pages of scripture, what you could say and chant inside your head is can God do it? Yes, he can. And he absolutely will. Every time the, the sinfulness and the foolishness of even the most faith filled Old Testament people appear to put the promises and the plans and the covenants of God in great danger. You say to yourself, Can God do it? Yes, He can. And then you keep reading to see how. How is it that despite all of the sinfulness and the brokenness of humanity, the sovereignty of God is going to see this through? Can He do it? Yes, He can. Will He do it? Yes, He has. And he's done it in Jesus. So then you could also chant to yourself Does he need me? No, he doesn't. But do I get to play a role? Yes, I do. And both of those things are equally and beautifully true. He does not need you, but you get to play a role in what it is that he's doing. He does not need Abram to bring blessing to the nations. But Abram gets to play a role. And despite all of Abram's sin and brokenness, the sovereignty of God will not be thwarted. Amen? Amen. We've, we've been singing a new-ish song recently. It's kind of like a modern hymn. We're gonna sing it now, actually. But the second verse says, now the curse, it has been broken. The curse, that's all this Genesis stuff we're looking at. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered full the welcome that i receive boldly i approach my father clothed in jesus righteousness there is no more guilt to carry it was finished upon that cross it was finished there which means you don't need to fulfill god's side of the covenant it's already been done yes let's stand up and sing together